You're listening to Changing Reality. Changing Reality, where we bend reality all across the world. Only on WQHS Radio. So hi, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Changing Reality. So I'm so excited to have all of you, our lovely, lovely audience, back with us for another phenomenal day. And Changing Reality, for all of you who may be new to the show or may have forgotten what we're all about, is a show that features phenomenal people from all walks of life who are, in essence, changing their own reality. So we'll be hanging out and interviewing uh, social change makers, entrepreneurs, top executives, even artists and musicians and inspiring individuals from all across the world. And many of them who spent some time here on the Penn campus too. So we get to hear these inspiring stories on how they are changing the reality that they live in and how we can learn from them to slowly take those little bite-sized lessons and use it to change the way we live our lives as well and hopefully figure out what we can do for the people around us, for the world around us at large. And just like that, um, I wanted to do this show simply because I feel like there are a lot of people out there who do phenomenal things and make waves of the lives of those around them. And I'm super passionate about learning how those people do what they do and at the same time change the world in their own capacity. So personally, I founded and run a youth movement called Ascendance in Malaysia, which is where I'm from, that collaborates with our Malaysian Ministry of Education to help provide an alternative education platform for any student who wants to go out there and create their own future. So we work with students from elementary all the way up to college through various sessions, programs, experiential learning activities and projects that help them discover their passion, learn about themselves and the world around them, and at the same time start careers for themselves while they're still in school that creates meaningful impact not just for themselves, but for the communities around them too. And to date, we've worked with over 15,000 students in 970 communities and have incubated countless number of student-run projects and social enterprises run by students aged 8 to 25 years old. And that just goes to show how important the power of stories are, because the basis of everything we do is connecting experiences from across industries, across countries, so that everyone across the world will be able to exchange ideas, exchange experiences that can help them grow and learn the lessons that they need to take the work that they do to the next level. To show you an example of how powerful stories are, because of the continuous effort of all of the amazing youngsters around the world that we work with, in September this year, we're actually organizing a conference for 50,000 students all across the globe that is fully run by Gen Z, which means eight to 15 to 25 year olds are, are the ones who are working on the slides, um, producing the videos, even liaising with ministry organizations to ensure that the whole event is put together. And the speakers themselves are also multiple award-winning Gen Zs who are like 10-year-olds from Tanzania who run their own financial literacy startups or 17-year-olds from um, uh, countries like Canada where they actually run health care startups for kids in hospitals. And we get all of these stories from, again, all across the globe to inspire each other, to inspire this huge audience so that more Gen Zs can come up and change the world. And again, the central component of that is opening up people's minds. So if you have any questions about the show, what we do, do drop it in the chat below. And today's guest is someone who is definitely going to change the way we look at the whole new industry. She's an experienced uh, strategist, consultant, and thought leader in the, in the field of public health, health sciences, and wellness practices. And she has helped life science companies with product launch, commercial strategy, and transformations. 
She was named the Chief Public Health Officer uh, of Americas at EY and has been working across government and the private sector on COVID response activation and has also been working to help companies think through their roles in driving long-term health equity through employee wellness and resilience strategies. With her experiences across the com commercial continuum, global market access and value creation, our speaker has held leadership positions in the life science field for over 20 years. And even before joining EY, has served as executive vice presidents um, in various healthcare consulting services and uh, various other companies across the field. She holds a BA from the University of Pennsylvania and a master's degree from the London School of Economics as well as the Harvard School of Public Health and has a PhD from the Boston University uh, School of Public Health as well. So without further ado, let's give a warm, warm welcome to the one, the only, Dr. Susan Garfield. Hello, great to be here. Hi, how are you? How's your morning going so far? It's going great. I'm so excited to talk to you and, and the Penn community. Well, thank you so much for joining us. And on that note, I guess we've got to start off our interview today by asking the one question that I think all of the students that we have listening would probably be thinking of, which is you are someone who is so successful that it's kind of hard to think like think about the fact that you started off at Penn, like you got your BA here, you were once a student like this there. So tell us, were you the lost, like confused children we are today that are going to Penn, not sure what we want to do? Or did you already have like everything planned out when you started out? And was this just like part of the plan? No, I, I had so much fun at Penn because I had no idea what I wanted to do. And I, I frankly don't, <laughs> I don't really understand what people do know what they want to do at 18, 19, 20 years of age. I mean, you're, you're so young. There's so much of the world to explore yet. That's what I loved about Penn. I, I took classes in everything you could possibly imagine. I thought of it as kind of a, a, a intellectual playground where you could kind of learn things and meet really cool people and have great conversations. And I think that the idea of of being so pigeonholed at one thing that was just never my my scene um at, at penn or really even afterwards in my career so no i started off um really as kind of a a liberal arts junkie i graduated with an english and women's studies degree you know as you can imagine highly employable after that oh my gosh and um and really just 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 had a had a great time but but what i didn't realize and what became so clear in my career afterwards was that all that learning and learning how to learn and learning how to have deep conversations and learning how to question things and learning how to interact with all those smart people from different backgrounds that's what led to my career success later on it was those um those intellectual skills that allowed me to be a better team member and in various roles moving forward so i would say to all, all of you guys who are undergraduates who don't know what you want to do perfect if you don't have a clear path excellent that's the way to towards happiness and success don't get too worried about about having everything figured out so early so there's hope for us still. Okay, that's very heartwarming to know. But like, um, I, I love that thing that you said that it was the other things, the intellectual skills, the ability to communicate that you picked up from kind of like being in this environment. And that's what kind of like helped you later. Like right now, I feel like we are learning those things. It's just that we, we are not aware that we're learning those things. So we're feeling, oh my gosh, like, well, what's happening in a sense? But like, Looking back in a sense, what do you feel were like the things that helped you really pick up those skills? Was it um, 
picking the right classes or picking the right friend groups? What do you think like enabled you to really like like realize that you've been picking those skills up in the first place? Yeah, I think just being open to new experiences. So one of the things I miss, once once you're an old adult like me, it's harder to kind of wake up in the morning and not know what's going to happen throughout the day. But I remember kind of walking down Locust Walk and someone would be like, hey, do you want to go do this? And you hadn't planned on it when you woke up, but you're like, yeah, that sounds awesome. Let's go do that. And, you know, that could include everything from going to meet a professor in the English building and discussing something one on one to going take a walk through the city and really thinking about, um, you know, just having fun while you're discussing the latest thing you're reading or studying. So all of those moments of engagement um, are so important. And, and I know a lot of you guys are doing them virtually right now. And so it takes a little bit more thoughtfulness and how to create those moments, but um, still really, really important. And so I would say just be open um, to, to new ideas, new things, take the course that you never really thought of taking, um, talk to that person who you've never talked to before, um, have, a, have you know, a meal with someone and really kind of keep asking questions. And in and, and that way you, you'll get exposed to, I think that just the deep, deep heterogeneity that is the Penn campus and also the that learning environment that they're trying to create for all of you. So I'm, I'm jealous that you guys get to do that on a day-to-day -day basis. So please take advantage of it. All right, I will take as much advantage as possible. Like guys, this is <laughs> your like free pass to be awesome and do all the stuff that you've always thought of about but never really like had the guts to do. So it's important, all right? And I think like moving forward from that, like today you're a rock star in this whole industry of public health. And like, there's so many things that you've published. There's so much, like I've read some of your articles and it's all really amazing things in a sense. But how did you begin that process of kind of like figuring out that this was the field for you? I know that after your time at Penn, you also did a master's degree at, uh, if I'm not mistaken, the London School of Economics on, if I'm not mistaken, public, uh, population and development. So at what point do you start feeling like, oh, okay, this is the field that I want to move into? Yeah, I think it's it's interesting. My whole family is in healthcare and 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 research. Um, so I of course wanted to be an artist, and I wanted nothing to do with it. But I think um, I don't know if, whether it's genetics that drew me or just the, the 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 thoughts and conversations I had growing up, caring about people, caring about health as an important driver of happiness, understanding that you know some some industries where you're creating cars or TVs are really cool and really important. But for me, it was more important to impact people's lives and my job. So healthcare and public health was always um, both an interest and a passion. And so my, my career was very nonlinear. I, I, I went to graduate school thinking I was going to go off to um, another part of the world and go work in women's reproductive health development issues. And then um, my sister, who's very, very dear to me, got, got quite ill. So I came back home to be close to her and then con continued to study public health and, and management and consulting. And, and then I kind of took a different tact and stayed here in the US and did a lot of strategy consulting, which has been amazing and led me into other, other avenues and proximity to a lot of innovation and, and, and the corporate role in healthcare development, um, a lot of thinking through how technology can impact the public health and how to drive change at scale. And so my career has 
I don't want anyone to mistake. And, and if you ever hear someone at the end of their career saying they knew what they were doing at the beginning, they're lying. Um, you know, I had the great fortune of having some really good opportunities, exposure to interesting things that led me to the next thing. And then that led me to the next thing. And so, um, it's a little bit like Hansel and Gretel in the forest following breadcrumbs. I just kind of followed my nose. And when there was a fork in the road, I, I trust, trusted my instincts. Um, but I, I think, you know, for, for the listeners, I know there's always this question, how do I navigate my career? How do I put myself in the position to get exposure to those really interesting and great opportunities? And, you know, my, my advice is always just don't be afraid to be an advocate for yourself use your voice in any in any environment that you're a part of, whether it's as an intern early on or as an early associate um, or kind of a manager or director as you move up the ladder. Um, but but learning how to kind of raise your hand and volunteer for different opportunities or support more senior team members um, and, and really learn from them that it, it it's it sounds so trite, but it really is the greatest way to both get exposure and, and create new opportunities for yourself. Yep, yep. I feel like that is something that is very important that all of us need to learn in a sense. And you have been like successful in a field that is, I would say, not easy to be successful in. Like you, you've got to be really smart, but like again, the work that you do affects so many lives. So First of all, strategy consulting for some of the biggest companies out there, the health industry itself is something that people don't want to know that like you get something wrong or like people want you to be as right as possible all the time. And like billions of dollars go into this industry like every single year. So like for you, even when you were just starting out, maybe as an intern or in your early years in the career, how did you really learn to do that whole self-advocacy thing and really believe in yourself in order to kind of like speak up and share what you had in mind? Yeah, I think part of it was I, I learned a lot of the intricacies of the healthcare system learned early on. So in my job, I was I was working on healthcare and, and working on getting new technologies paid for and learning how to navigate different healthcare systems around the world. So I learned about them. And then I ended up with some knowledge that was useful to other people. So, you know, as as my my superiors are trying to say strategically, how should this new drug or this new medical device or this new diagnostic enter the UK market or the or the Japanese market or the US market? I'd be sitting there in the background being like, here's the detail, here's the detail. You know, here can I can I offer you some support here? Or or I went off on my own and I researched this thing, would it be useful? And by thinking through the problems they had to solve and how I could be useful to them, suddenly I became useful to them and they wanted me on their teams and I got more and more exposure. So I think part of it is is really in whatever environment you're in and whatever team you're on, think about how to be helpful. Think about what the next problem that your team is trying to solve. Think about how you can use your specific knowledge base to help and support other people. And in doing that, you'll increase what you know and you'll also increase their trust in you. So it's a really this wonderful bi-directional value chain and, and, and I always kind of believe in that. I, I also think it's really, and, and, and I'm a behavioral economist, so I should preface this, a behavioral economist who is someone who looks at the world through, through the lens of how, how and why do people do what they do and what incentives are going to drive people towards action or change. And so I, I, I've always looked at kind of 
what is what is someone's incentive for doing that? What 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 you know, some people do things out of the goodness of their heart, but most people act because it in some way benefits them. Either you're a value to them or they're trying to achieve something that you can you can support or in helping you it helps them. So I also think for for people early on in their career, really think about what what each of the people you're trying to impact or influence is, what are their goals and how can you help them achieve their goals? And in doing that, you'll they'll probably help you achieve yours. All right, that, that's, a, that's an interesting thing about, that's an interesting perspective to put when you have these interactions, I'd say. Do you have any stories of like the early time, like of just really finding your voice and being able to like figure things out and piece it together? Because like, number one, you've got to piece together the very heavy research that you do and kind of like fit that all into the context of what you're presenting, what you're sharing about. And then you've got to piece together in a sense, what people want to do, or what, what's their kind of like objective with this research that you're doing. Do you have any stories where you had to kind of like navigate those two at the same time in order to like be effective in your team and actually start working on uh, those initial projects? And yeah, I mean, for for most of my career, I've been a consultant, and basically, what a consultant does is you get hired by a company who has a problem, and and they hire you because they think you have expertise that they don't have and 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 they want you to apply that expertise to solve their problems so they can move their their agenda forward and you know in many cases um earlier in my career i worked for for a boutique strategy consultancy that helped companies with really really interesting cool medical innovations um they had just developed something or they had just gotten um uh, fda approval for something and now they wanted to understand how do you get it to market how do you get doctors to use it how do you get payers to pay for it um how do you kind of go from an idea to actually adoption and so to to help them we had to help them understand the systems within which they were working and how to navigate those systems and how to convince the key decision makers uh, of the value of their product and and why they would want to use it and in one circumstance very early on in my career i think i was 24 25 years old a relatively new consultant um, my my boss uh, at the time, and not even my boss, my my boss's boss's boss. You know, like the big boss who walks in the room, and you're like, just sit there, yes. and you know, just hope you don't spill your coffee. You know, walks into the room, and there's about ten different people on our team in the room. Everybody more senior than me, and we we were planning our 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 final um, read out to the client and and we had done all the work and we had our we had our findings we had our deck and and now it just came to kind of communicating back to the client and so we had this whole plan of who was going to say what and of course i was the lowest person on the totem pole so i was just kind of watching and listening so it came time to actually do the presentation and the clients came to our office and they were all you know in these beautiful suits it was back you know in the day when everything was much more formal Everyone was suited up, and I was I was really in the back of the room to to kind of take notes to make sure the the the, the presentation went well. And the lead consultant was out sick that day, and my boss turned to me and like four minutes before the meeting was like, "You're going to have to give the presentation." Oh and wow! I was like, "You're out of your mind." I'm a toddler. I don't know anything, and there's really no way I'm going to be able to do this. And and he just looked at me. He's like, "No." you'll be able to do it, you're fine. And it was so funny because as the meeting was getting started, instead of introducing myself, he introduced me. And he introduced me by saying, 
I'd like you to, um, you know, we're, we're going to be going through the findings today um, that we've collectively as a team come up with. Um, our colleague, Susan Garfield, is going to be, um, you know, leading the discussion and we'll be all here to lead Susan is a graduate of the University of Pennsylvania um, with additional graduate degrees from, from Harvard and LSE. She has great experience in the field of healthcare um, and global healthcare systems and will be able to, to walk us through these findings. And there was something about hearing him describe me as instead of me describing myself where I said, oh, well that person should be able to give this talk. And that sounded pretty good. Okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna believe in that picture of myself more than how I would paint myself, which is, you know, some sniveling idiot who's in their mid-20s and doesn't know anything. And it was a really good lesson. The, the presentation went very well. They, they, they appreciated our findings. I obviously knew every detail of the presentation because I was involved in the team and did the work. And so it was no problem giving that. But I'm telling you this story because I think it's really critical not to let our own self-doubts and self-image stand in the way of what we're capable of. And sometimes you need someone else to look at you and see your best self and put you in that position to excel or succeed or go beyond what you may be comfortable with. And that was really a, a launching off point for me where I realized, well, yeah, not only can I do it, but I'm pretty good at it. And I, I like giving presentations. I like talking to the clients. And, and not only do I want to do this when somebody's out sick, I want to do it more and more frequently. So um, that was just an example of where something kind of went, could have gone sideways and, and went pretty well. No, that's absolutely brilliant. Like, oh my gosh, like I feel like um, that would give us a lot more confidence now that now that you mentioned it. Yeah, I feel like we often undercredit ourselves when we're thinking about us compared to when someone else probably looks at us objectively, like on paper, like in black and white. That like, okay, like all right, that's a good way of putting it. And I feel like. A lot of like personally with me, I've worked with a lot of students across the country or where I'm from. And one of the things that I've noticed is um, they have that like or like we have this issue sometimes of like self-confidence. So it feels like um, when you self-advocate for yourself, you kind of like I don't I don't know if this is true. I doubt it is. But it feels sometimes like you have to lose a little bit of the humility that you have. And like I think we're all taught from young to kind of just be like, oh, like be humble, be kind and all, which is very important. And I feel like that is important. It's just that also I feel like we often mistake that for not being outspoken, not actually saying our piece and all of that. So have, has there been any point of time where there may have been a conflict or like someone would have said something that your research disagrees with and you want to kind of like correct that? And how do you actually like have that confidence to go out there, like find a solution based on the work that you've done and the things that you know are right in a sense? Um, yeah, it's a great question. Our, our own building our own self-confidence and projecting that is such a challenge throughout our careers and i think it's it's even more re real for for women who often come at it and at a at a cultural disadvantage um depending on where we are in the world um or where we are in the country or where we are with a with a different group of people um i think it's very true for um for people of color in different environments people are very quick to um, either misjudge or miscalculate the capabilities of different types of people when they don't look or sound or feel like themselves. So I think walking into any room, there is a cultural context as well as a power context and starting to understand that can really impact um, how effective 
um, we as individuals can be as we communicate and um, and either communicate knowledge, communicate a point of view, communicate something we want to sell, what, whatever it is. And I think that knowledge, is, as stupid as it sounds, but knowledge is power. And the way to counteract anybody's uh, mistrust of you is by knowing more or or being more confident. Or, and, and, and as you know, as we're projecting out into the airways of the pen community, look, you're smarter than 99.9% .9 of people out there. Like intelligence isn't the problem, right? Um, we need to get really good at communicating. We need to be really much better at at building trust, at connecting with people, at reading the scene, understanding what they're trying to get. You know, most of the time, it's not, in my most successful times in my career, it wasn't that I had the smartest idea, even though I may have thought I did, we all do, right? It wasn't being the smartest, it was the ability to connect with the other person and, and say, this is a good idea and you should trust me. And therefore we can collaborate and work together to bring it to life. And those are the points in your career when you have the greatest success. So it's not just about being smart, it's about building connections and making people understand or believe that you're the right person for them to work with on whatever the challenge it is. So that, that's what I would suggest. All right, very, very well said. And to the second part of that question, when you're in an environment where there may be conflict, there may be a little bit of hostility in a sense, what could we do or like what have you done in your experiences to kind of like steer it back to the research or get people to see from your point of view um in a very without like losing your cool or anything because again like you've really risen so high in the rank that i'm sure you you are able to like manage situations like at the snap of your finger but for all of us who are <laughs> all of us in the communication world what do we actually do in those situations well, this works for me. I don't know if it will work for for all of you out there listening, but this is this is what I tend to suggest. Most of the time, when people are in a stressful situation, stress begets stress. So, if someone starts screaming, your natural response is to rise to that level of stress. So, like, you said this. No, I didn't say this. What about this? And 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 things tend to escalate based on just meeting emotion with emotion. The, the the better way that I have found for me, um, just as you know, as a personal thing, is I usually forcibly de-escalate when things get tense. So if someone comes at me like with some issue, anger, un unease, concern, stress, um, I usually get quieter versus louder. Um, I'll slow the conversation down versus accelerate it and just listen. And if you change the pace of a conversation, it really can change the dynamic of um, escalation to solutioning. And if you're listening versus explaining, then you're already kind of changing the dynamic of whatever's going on. Um, and it's also under important to understand your role. Are you being confronted as part of a problem? Are you being asked to solve something? Are, are people just frustrated and they just want some space to vent and then move on. So, you know, all sorts of things can happen in a high stress or conflicted environment and it's not all the same. So you just more often than not just need to pause and listen 
and slow things down and quiet things down and give people a space to, to, to speak. And then sometimes you need to give people some space and structure to work it out and either act as a mediator or, um, or a listener on both sides. So that, that's, that's been my approach so far. Um, sometimes it works better than others, but. No, no, that's amazing. And definitely everyone write that down. And I feel like you are definitely the right person to dish this out because you apply it in your life, number one. And also number two, it's like you are a professional also in the wellness sector. And I feel like the kind of like relationship between your emotions and your health, it also comes into play, like especially in like the office and the work that we do and all of that. And we hear all of the time stories about people who are somatized, so internalize a lot of that negative emotion that they feel or people who because of the environment or the situation they have, it affects their health or like the other people because of conditions they may already have. So like for you, moving on to kind of like a little bit of the wellness sector of the work that you do. Well, when you come into like a, a, a company or a space or a culture, when you see people um, may not have the best company culture that fosters health and wellness in a way, what is the first thing that you look for in fixing it? Yeah, culture is a really interesting thing because it's not something you can change overnight. It's something that has to be supported and lived at the top of the organization and then filtered all the way through every day, reinforced, um, supported. And, you know, if you look at behavior change theory, it's really easy to start something. It's really hard to sustain it. You know, think of all of us who are, I'm going to, I'm going to start my diet today, or I'm going to exercise today. Yeah. And then it's like the, the year, we, the beginning of the year, where we collectively fool ourselves into behavior. Everybody, change. right? So, and it's like the first week, you're like all on it. The second week, you maybe a little bit less. The third week, you do it once. The fourth week, you forgot you ever made the pledge, right? And you justify it. And 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 companies and organizations are the same. It's really easy to start a culture initiative. It's really hard to sustain it. So. I think uh, it's we spend a lot of time talking to, to organizations about not only their ideas and vision and hopes for change, but what they're going to do over time to sustain, reinforce, evolve um, at all levels of the organization. So when you make a commitment to a cultural change, it's not just a commitment at the top, but it's at every level. How are you going to um, execute and reinforce it? And and that's hard, and it's it, that that's hard work, um, and not always successful. Uh, but when your your question was about health and wellness, and I think for most of us, the the employer can create or try to create a positive environment. You know, flexible work or free. Um, gym memberships or, you know, whatever, what, whatever it is. And, and I think you guys are entering a world where lots of that stuff is becoming more normative, which is amazing. Um, when, <laughs> when, when I was younger, I worked, um, uh, I mentioned I was in consulting right after I went to consulting, I worked for this amazing women's health biotech. It was a women's health biotech, um, amazing company, but I got pregnant with my first daughter and went to HR and I was like, well, what's the maternity policy? And they were like, oh, the what? <laughs> Sorry, what? And I was like, wait, what, what? And, and, you know, just, just a small anecdote to show you how times have changed. I mean, that was like 20 years ago. Um, so things, things are changing and, um, well, actually, no, that's not true. She's only four. That was 15 years ago. I'm lying. 15 years ago. Um, but I think 
when we think about health and wellness, there's policies that companies can put in place that are that make it better. But I think it's also an attitude that you as an employee have to understand and really live. Um, so work is stressful, work is hard. Um, and it's, it's, it's important to just remember that unless you're in medicine or the military, most things aren't life or death. And, you know, I have had so many times in my life where I'm like, oh my God, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. And like, what I'm stressing about is that like, there's a deadline and I'm concerned about meeting the deadline or like the client needs something and I'm not sure I can do it. These are important things, but they are not life or death. And, and, and just kind of constantly stepping back from whatever stress you're in and, and just saying, well, is that, is that like a real and appropriate response to the situation I'm in? It's okay to be stressed. It's okay to be anxious, but like, is, is my level of stress, is my level of anxiety, is my level of concern appropriate um, or proportionate to what's going on? And I think that can, some, can sometimes help everybody just bring it down a notch and say, okay, like no one's living or dying here. Let's try to get this report out tonight. Or no one's gonna you know, have a stroke if um, you know, that the client has to wait one more hour to get this right. So uh, that part of wellness is something to learn early and often and frequently throughout your career. Yeah, and I love that part about how sometimes like the infrastructure is provided, like we've got the policies, we've got the uh, facilities at times also, but if we ourselves don't really have that frame of mind to utilize that and kind of like internalize our own kind of like well-being practices, then all of that is not as meaningful as what we do with our like internal space in a sense. So like, all right, like that's definitely something that I would love to hear more about. And kind of like moving towards your team. Today, you're someone who I feel mentors like so many people in your team, in your industry and all. What are the core things that um, you try to pass down or instill in your team itself? Because again, um, like it's a bit ironic to, to, to work on in this industry, the health and wellness industry. And at the same time, you've got your own team to work on and make sure that they're all right and they're taken care of as well. So what are those things that the core practices that you try to pass on to them in a sense? Yeah, I think building building your teams and mentoring people is the most important thing you can do in your career. Uh, if you if you if you kind of look back, I, I don't I don't ever think of like, oh, that project was so amazing when I look back and think about the people I've worked with, that's really what becomes rewarding and, and, and part of anybody's legacy. So spending time mentoring people, spending time talking to people, spending time listening. And, and so the, the first and most important thing about being a good um, colleague and then eventually leader is, is learning how to listen and, and hearing people um, about their experience at work, sometimes about their experience outside of work, about their goals for their career, about their goals for their role, what other roles they might want to evolve into over time, what are the skills they have, what are the skills they want to build, and how you can help. And so that's the perspective I've always taken is, is what is my role in helping you achieve your goals? And, and, and is there anything I can do either um, directly professionally in this role in this organization or outside to help you build your brand 
Um, so one of the things that I talk a lot to, to, to folks I work with about is, is you know, what, what are you doing to build your own individual brand? Um, how can we help you create thought leadership that has your name on it? How can we give you a platform to speak in your voice? How can we work on that project to expand your role so that you're leading a part of the discussion? And then over time kind of increasing that. Um, one of the things that I was have always been very, very purposeful of in my career, and I think it's been useful, um, is that every job I've ever had, I've published something. Um, every job I've looked at, how do I take this role and create a larger external voice for, for my name? Because whatever this job is, I'm gonna take two things away. I'm gonna take the line on my resume with the company and my role, and then if I publish or, or do speaking opportunities, then that's a whole different section of my resume that I own that's for me. So I always recommend for people to think about that. Like what, what are they doing to build their own external brand in any role? Okay, that's actually a very good tip. And I feel like many times we get caught up in the work that we forget that, oh my gosh, there, there's the other element of it. There's the branding part of it. There's the making sure that this work like sticks, like even after this, like in my own experiences. And that is absolutely brilliant. You're right about that. I've got to ask this question. I know you're probably sick of people asking you this, but I feel like we've come to a point of time in this century where if we do not ask something about the pandemic, then it, it's just like the ignoring the elephant in the room. So I'm sorry in advance, but I've got to ask it in a sense. And I also feel like we, we've come to like a point where like two years ago, I feel like we kind of ignored our public health professions a little, a little bit, sorry for that. But now it's like all that anyone can talk about and it's like the most important things in a way. How do you feel COVID-19 and the pandemic has changed the industry you're in? And how do you, like, and for all of the youngsters who are trying to venture into this field, who want to make a difference, who want to um, be part of this industry coming into it, what is your advice for them in a sense? Yeah, the pandemic has, has been devastating in so many ways for so many people. But the one thing that I think has been really amazing is to watch governments and corporations and boards and and people in their homes really start thinking for once about the role of the health of people the health of community the health of populations as a as a critical driver of how our societies function and how people remain happy uh, over time. You can't have a happy society without a healthy society. You can't. The two things are intimately and intricately interrelated. And so one of the results of the pandemic for me is an S elevated realization of the role of, of health um, in a high functioning economy, in a high functioning society, as a high functioning corporation and and what that means in 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 the day-to-day -day world is you've got companies saying not only how do we keep our people healthy which is good but i think they were already thinking about that but how do we how do we improve the health of the communities in which we work how do we support issues around health equity which by the way no one was talking about two years ago and now everybody's talking about um, which is amazing to me that, that this concept that, that there is inherent and systemic and generational inequities in health and health outcomes for, 
for poor people, for people from different geographic areas, people from different ethnic and demographic backgrounds, that that is now in the public consciousness is so powerful and so impressive and important. So I'm hoping to build on that and, and actually hold organizations accountable to address that. I think the, the pandemic has also taught us that people in all sorts of different sectors can impact health and health outcomes. So who would have thought that if you worked in a deep freeze refrigerator company, you could have a massive impact on the supply of vaccines and thus the health of populations around the world. So I think this has forced companies and governments and different systems to be much more creative, much more connected, um, using technology to hopefully um, share information and, and be a little bit more proactive um, in terms of what's next. And, and so my final thought on, on the pandemic is where and where I've ended up and where I'm hoping a lot of other organizations end up is that this is the first in our lifetimes. It's not the first in, in history, but I think it's a, it's a tremendous wake up call in how connected we all are. Um, and what happens in one place is intimately involved in the health and well-being of everybody around us. And, and I'm, I'm hoping that makes us more of an aware, connected, um, socially integrated society. Uh, and, and I feel very hopeful for that. I look at your generation and I think you guys understand that in a way that maybe generations previous didn't. Um, so that's one thing. I think the second part of that is that we all now recognize we have a responsibility to not only think about these things, read about them in the paper, but we gotta solve them. If, 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 if all these wonderful, brilliant Penn graduates don't figure out how to solve this, we're all tanked. So th this is now a collective responsibility. I, I really feel and I'm proud to be a part of that solutioning and, and I'm spending a lot of my time and energy figuring out how to create more resilient societies, more resilient businesses, more resilient governments, more resilient populations to whatever's next from a health and wellness standpoint. But I, I, I can't wait to hear and learn from all of you as you think about how to create more resilient energy systems, more resilient climate interactions, more resilient monetary systems, more resilient social networks, and all of these wonderful things that will, will help our, our collective selves moving forward. Okay, very lovely said, and I think that you've inspired at least us to take it more seriously. And I completely agree with your thoughts on the pandemic. It's been devastating, but I think the silver lining is that we now take this very basic part of our lives very seriously, which is how it should be. And I feel like hopefully we keep this kind of like safety and little bubble that we've wrapped around our help in and continue to make that a prioritizing factor in the decisions we make here on forth. And honestly, this conversation has just been so insightful in so many levels, like on a personal level, on like finding out your experiences, but also on looking at the globe in a sense, looking at organizations, looking at how industries have been changing with the whole industry of health as the background support for it. So thank you so much for like joining in for this interview. I've had so much fun. Hopefully you had fun too. It's been great. Thank you so much for having me. What an honor. Yeah, and like I, I'm going to spoil it for the audience, but you were an alum of WKHS Radio before this, <laughs> right? 
Um, yeah, I will tell you all that I met my husband at Penn and he and a bunch of friends had a, a radio show from like two to 4 a.m. I'm sure there was like three people who ever listened. And so I had the the fun of being in the studio, playing records late at night and, and just uh, enjoying all that all that the Penn campus has to offer. So I hope that you guys are enjoying your time there. And it's just really been a, been a thrill to talk to you over the airwaves. All right. Thank you so much. And with that, I feel like our episode has come to a close. We've had the amazing, amazing Dr. Susan Garfield with us, who's been shedding light on this whole industry. And thank you all for tuning in and listening to another episode of Changing Reality. We'll see you again next week, um, every Thursday at 10 p.m. ET here in the U.S. and wherever that is around the world for you. So bye, guys. You're listening to Changing Reality. Changing Reality where we bend reality all across the world. Only on WQHS Radio.